At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Crooked Conversations <laughs> is brought to you. Love it just cleared his throat in a weird way. By st- That's why we're all laughing. <laughs> by Stitch Fix. If you like a lot of guys, wait. No, <laughs> <laughs> Leave it in. Leave it in. If you're like a lot of guys, mm-hmm. you could probably think of a million things you'd rather be doing than shopping for clothes. It still works the first way. Between the parking and crowds at the mall, the endless browsing and lack of advice online. I'm not upset about a lack of advice online. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Twitter. It's but, enough to make yeah. you want to rock the same t-shirt. I'm sick of rocking these t-shirts. But you can't. So let me tell you about Stitch Fix Men. They've reimagined how to find and buy clothes. And you never even have to leave the house. It's that easy. Come on. Go to stitchfix.com and tell them your sizes. <laughs> Favorite type of clothes, how much you want to spend. Your personal stylist gets to work and handpicks new clothes for you based on your style and budget. Five items are delivered right to your door. You try them on at home and you only pay for what you keep. Mm-hmm. Shipping's free both ways. So anything you don't want, just send it back. And exchanges are always free too. You can get your fix monthly, quarterly, or whenever you feel like it. No subscription required. It's easy. The shipping is free. Why not give them a try? Got I it. promise. I've been doing it. What? what? Yeah, I've worn several Stitch Under the radar items. Stitch Fix over like Their hit rate has been surprisingly high. Okay. Well. Get started now at stitchfix.com slash crookedconvos, and you'll also get 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. Hmm. That's stitchfix.com slash crookedconvos to get started today. Stitchfix.com slash crookedconvos. Hello and welcome to Crooked Conversations. I am Erin Gloria Ryan, and today we are going to talk about women running for office. I'm so excited about the people I have joining me today. I have Erin Los Cutraro, the founder and CEO of She Should Run, which is a leading nonpartisan organization working to increase the number of women running for office in the United States. And I have, talking to us from Washington, Stephanie Shriok, the president of Emily's List, an organization that elects pro-choice Democratic women to run for office. Ladies, I am so excited to welcome both of you today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So I'm just going to start this off by saying it was the election day 2017 of times. It was the Roy Moore of times. This election day, I think we can all agree, showcased the power of female candidates and female voters. And uh, we're in a real <laughs> a real strange news cycle if you're somebody who wants to see uh, women valued and uh, women participating. But Aaron, do you think that there's a connection between a sort of Roy Moore moment and the sort of moment that we saw where women showed up to the polls? Absolutely. Look, I think I think we saw this in uh, 2016 when for She Should Run, it was kind of the beginning of this massive surge of interest of, of women putting their names, their hats in the ring in interest of running for office. I think, you know, if you, if you sort of go back and, and look, misogyny isn't anything new, um, but you go back to the 2016 cycle, even where, you know, many of us, myself included, could have never imagined having conversations about misogyny at the kitchen table with my daughters, <laughs> that, you know, women all over this country 
know that it's it's not just that uh, we can do better, it's that we have to do better and, and their voices aren't represented. So that's, you know, that's really the beginning of, I think, why one of the many reasons why we're seeing women step forward. And Stephanie, you know, you're, you're working with Emily's List, which is a massive organization. Have you seen a connection between, I guess, uh, misogyny being on the front pages and women deciding they're going to do something about it? You know, for, for us, you know, Emily's List has been working to, you know, train, recruit, and support women for 32 years, uh, starting in 1985. And I, I often talk about the 2015-16 election cycle as, you know, a historic moment for Emily's List. And it, in fact, was. This country, for the first time ever, nominated a woman, uh, Hillary Clinton, to be a presidential nominee of a major party. That cycle, Emily's List had uh, what we called the Hillary bump of candidates. And we talked to about 920 women uh, to run for office up and down the ballot. And I share that because when the election of 16 happened, we saw what I would consider the one-two punch that ignited a movement. Uh, And the one-two punch was that so many women across this country were holding their breath, waiting for Hillary Clinton to win and rise to be president. And they were scared. I saw it when I traveled around the country. Uh, They would pull me aside in corners and go, we're so excited. I don't want to show my emotion. The tears would well in their eyes. And all I could think was, boy, is there going to be an eruption of emotion the night Hillary Clinton wins? So when she didn't, uh, there was an eruption of emotion because not only did she lose, she lost to that guy, you know, that guy who said terrible things about women, who did terrible things to women, who is just completely unqualified. And the explosion happened uh, at Emily's List. And it is all tied to, to in my mind, to those moments uh, where there is this great fear that, you know, we are going backward uh, and we're going to go to a Mad Men era. And what in the world does that mean for me and my daughters? Uh, and the first four weeks after the election, where we hardly ever have people come to us, particularly that early, and say, I want to run. I mean, our job is to go out and find women to run. Uh, we had in four weeks over 1,000 women contact us through through the phone lines and through the website saying, I want to run. We've never seen – what I said, 920 the cycle before, 1,000 in the first four weeks. We now have had 20,000 women contact us saying, I want to run. I may not know what for, but I've got to do something. And you better believe it. It is this fear that we're going to roll back and this empowerment – to make sure our voices are heard. And that's what we're seeing by the, the leadership of these women. Erin, I wanted to ask you, you kind of work on the incubator end of this like pipeline. Why don't you describe a little bit about how you experienced the upswing in interest in female candidates running for office after 2016? Yeah, look, it was, it was wild. Um, similar to what Stephanie described, we had... You know, we had launched just before Election Day in 2016 a program called the She Should Run Incubator. And it's really, you know, we looked around in the in the landscape and wanted to figure out the, the smartest way to add value. And the opportunity that we saw is, OK, if you're a woman who's really thinking about running for the first time and you're just not even sure where to go next, you need that sort of logical place to start where you can peek behind the curtain. And maybe you're not ready for that training just yet, but you really want to understand 
what it takes and get really centered in what you want to bring to elected office. And so we so we built this program. You know, it has a it has a kind of a virtual entry point. And we went out in, in pilot. I love to tell the story because we went out in pilot mode and and kind of tested what it was going to take to get women into the program. And when we launched in October um, of 2016, we were very intentional about the timing of that because, you know, we were all like many in our country sort of planning for this election of of, uh, the first woman president with Hillary and what it was going to take after that point. And so, um, you know, based on our experience, we thought, okay, we can get about 100 women in the program a month. So um, it was an aggressive goal, but but one that we, you know, figured out how to, how to get to. So we launched, we hit our goal, and then Election Day came and went. Obviously, big surprise. And similar to how, how uh, Stephanie described it, really was just the floodgates opening. So we closed out 2016 with over 5,500 women in the program. Oh, my and, God. Yeah, and, you know, turned the corner on, on 15,000 just recently. So it is, um, it's tremendous, I think, just what we're seeing. And, and, and you know, I, I would say, too, after that, it really took for us as an organization that, you know, we, we, we're, we play long game. So we, you know, we're really working with those women who are thinking about running for the first time. We're looking at the culture that is either inviting or not to women who we want to see run and thinking about what we can address there. And so <laughs> when we saw this surge, we went, okay, well, we're going to take that little internal goal that we have that we drive to, which is to get 250,000 women to run for office, and we're going to make it public. So, so you know, this summer we went out with our with our 250,000 by 2030 goal to to make it clear that we're not going to stop until we get there. And are we on track for getting to 250,000? We're going to get there. Yeah. Heck yeah. So I think it's really interesting that both of you kind of cite the 2016 election and, you know, what that meant to women. Regardless, I mean, Aaron, you run a nonpartisan organization, so I think it is something that's even separate from party. There's a question I want to pose to you, Stephanie. Do you think that when men who have egregious records in their personal conduct when it comes to dealing with women, do you think when they get beaten by women, would you say they're asking for it? Uh, I, I do like to see when the women uh, win those races. I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, we could say the men are asking for it. I think they're definitely think, asking for it. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, and unfortunately, we're seeing more of that, it seems like. And uh, because of the bravery of women who are willing to stand up and uh, share their stories and speak the truth about what's going on. I mean, what a, what a moment to be part of in American history to to see the the Me Too movement happening. I, just, I am just so, so proud and really think it's important for all of us to remember to, to back up those brave women who are willing to, to stand up and, and speak the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a really interesting moment in history because it seems like a bunch of different threads are coming together in ways that you never could have expected. Like, you know, a Hollywood monster being revealed is somehow tied into, you know, the actions of a man on tape in 2005. It's it's very butterfly effect. Uh, but Aaron, I wanted to pivot to you really quick. Um, since your organization, like I have mentioned, is nonpartisan, why do we need more women in office? Are we just better? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're certainly different. We bring a, a, a unique experience and perspective to the table that, frankly, you know, to date, if you sort of look at the at the overall um, representation of women and keep in mind that, you know, it's 2017 and this is the United States of America and we're ranked 104th in the world in women's representation. So 
you know, it's very sobering to to kind of live in the in the numbers at times and know how far we have to go. Um, but but look, I, I would say that you know she should run is committed to being nonpartisan because we need we need a voice in in this country that is really talking about how we can level the playing field for all women and for girls for that matter. So you know it's not uh, for us. It's not that we we don't acknowledge that you know women who come into our community are partisan themselves. Look, we all have our value structure. We all have. We're not telling you how to vote when you go in the ballot box, but. But in terms of, you know, really thinking about the systems that keep women from being able to step forward, that's what She Should Run is about. And we want to we want to make it possible so that, you know, young girls, when they're thinking about all the different things that they can be, that they see elected office as possible. And they don't see it through the lens of partisanship because that's not how most most young girls and, and a lot of Americans, for that matter, are coming to the table when they're thinking about, you know, community service. So, you know, it's a, it's a different angle on it, but one that's really important as we think about how to kind of tap the full talent pool that this country has to offer. Sure. And Stephanie, from your perspective as somebody who works on the more partisan side of things, what have you seen women who are in office bring to the table that they're, and I don't want to overgeneralize, but generally speaking, you know, what do women when they're in positions of leadership bring to the table that uh, that make the whole organization better? Well, I would uh, sort of step back and say, boy, women may be better at this job. (laughs) Uh, And I feel like I can even quote uh, someone who I don't agree with on anything is uh, for the most part, though, his dislike of Donald Trump, which is Senator John McCain, who very publicly said uh, a couple years ago when the budget standoff happened in the Senate and they shut down the government and it was the women of the Senate on both sides, Democrats and Republicans who came together to end that shutdown. And he even publicly said it was the women who got this done. And that's so often what our our women bring. You know, Emily's list uh, has over over those three decades really changed the face of Congress in particular. Uh, with the numbers of women in office. And when you look at the 16 Democratic women serving in the United States Senate, uh, they really find ways uh, to work together uh, often across the aisle to find solutions for families. And I often you know, point to Senator Patty Murray, who is the now the highest ranking woman in the history of the United States Senate. Uh, and in the party structure, you know, she's number th- number three in the Democratic caucus. And her ability to pull people together, I mean, even this fall when when there's been a constant push by the Republicans, though they are failing, a constant push to dismantle, destroy, and now repeal the Affordable Care Act, uh, Patty Murray's like, we got to figure out a solution here. Uh, we need to move forward to ensure that Americans have coverage. And she sat down with Lamar Alexander, Republican for, from Tennessee, and really pounded out a, a, the beginnings of a solution. Now, unfortunately, we're in a partisan environment here where you know, there's, a, there's a group of Republicans who don't want to compromise on anything. And that's a problem, which gets me to the other piece of this. And Aaron, Aaron mentioned this uh, a little bit. You know, the importance of women's voices are so critical. And you're right. We need women uh, in both parties. Emily's List, as I said, have been doing this since 1985. And the percentage of women in these Democratic caucuses, uh, if you just look at the Democratic side, 
is now, you know, 35%. Now, not enough, and I feel like it should be well over 50. Or I would argue maybe 60, 70, 100% would be fine. Um, but um, <laughs> Matriarchy. But, right, we're moving <laughs> that direction. But the Republican side has not increased their numbers in those 30 years in any meaningful way. And there's a reason for that. There has to be, in a two-party system, which is our country, there has to be some sort of pressure on the Republican Party to push women's leadership up the ranks. That is what Emily's List has been doing uh, for 30 years. And I, you know, I was not there in 1985 when they started this amazing organization. And I stand upon the shoulders of giants like Ellen Malcolm, who founded uh, this great organization. But listening to her stories, don't think that the Democratic Party had open arms about women coming in in 1986. Uh, they did not. It was the constant pressure of Emily's List on the party leadership saying, here's, an here's another candidate. Here comes Ann Richards. Here comes Barbara Boxer. Here comes Dianne Feinstein. Here comes Debbie Stabenow. Like the constant, like, you have to acknowledge these women are amazing. They are talented and they can win. And now we are able to jointly recruit with the Democratic Party. Nobody thinks about it anymore because it's just we are looking for women candidates. But it took us three decades to get to this place. And I worry that there still today is no entity putting pressure on the Republican Party to do the same thing. Cricket Conversations is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. In need of great talent for your business, but short on time, you yes, have, yes. You don't have to get lost in a huge stack of resumes. Whew. We got lost in what we did the whole thing about getting lost in a stack of resumes. Like I said, a beautiful ass. You just <laughs> stop looking at me. You just need the right tools. Nope. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click, so you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then <laughs> ZipRecruiter so puts its smart, smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting, so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. You can even get a head start on the interview process by adding screening questions to your job posts to help identify the most qualified candidates. So, for instance, if you're the Republican Party in Alabama, you know, you get it. So you don't have to waste time <laughs> sorting through a stack of resumes to find the perfect fit, like a person who doesn't continue to sign high school yearbook into their 30s. No wonder 80% of employers <laughs> who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish all in one place. The smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter's been used by the growing businesses of all sizes and industries. This is like the two-page resume of ad copy. ZipRecruiter <laughs> has been used by growing businesses of all sizes. <laughs> <and> <laughs> they they, they, sure. You have to speak to them in the in the language of the resume. <laughs> and right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash CrookedCombos. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash CrookedCombos. One more time. We love ZipRecruiter. We love ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter.com slash CrookedCombos. You know, Aaron, I wanted to ask you, you know, looking at kind of this ugly moment that we are at in the news cycle, do you think that more Republican women being elevated through the party would kind of help head off the crazy train that the Republican Party is currently on? Yeah, look, no doubt. I think Stephanie is right on about it. You can just look at the numbers and see the power that exists in an organization like Emily's List putting pressure 
on a political institution because there is no match to that in the Republican Party. And it plays out in the, the you know, uh, breakdown of women in Congress being heavily skewed to Democrats. And, you know, Republican women are really struggling to even make it into and, and out of primaries. <laughs> so, you know, they're not being recruited to the table and then they get to the table and they don't have the same level of access to power and influencers and funding that's built in in the, in the you know, existing boys club. So something really has to change with, you know, we talk about often there, there are these, you know, political gatekeepers that, that many people don't know exist. You know, they are the political parties. They are major donors. They are very influential and can have positive influence mm-hmm. in these systems. And and right now, there is not that existing pressure for Republicans. So I think that, um, you know, we're seeing the beginnings of, of some of that emerge, especially now. I mean, I think, look, there are so many uh, incredible Republican women in this country who are uh, figuring out, trying to to join forces to to see that you know their voices are heard too, and and look, we can't we can't as a country expect to have the smartest policies if we only have women on one side of the aisle. So I, you know, I know it's not the work of of Emily's list, so I don't expect Stephanie to speak to that. But 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 you know, it it is to the advantage you know of our country, not just women, that we see women's representation on both sides, and 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 you know, we do we need pressure from the top. Mm-hmm. That's really fascinating, um, and I want to go to the donor question. Stephanie, when Emily's list was kind of nascent, how did they get through to big donors? How did they convince donors to the Democratic Party that women matter? Well, the truth is when when we started, we started because we couldn't. We couldn't do it. There, there was no way. Uh, just uh, I give a little history lesson here, but the reason Emily's list really came together uh, was because some really strong-minded women uh, here in Washington, D.C., led by Ellen Malcolm, had just watched in 1982. I know I'm going back into the way back uh, history now, but in 1982, a woman ran for Senate in Missouri by the name of Harriet Woods. And she was really, uh, really close and doing very well. And at the time, no Democratic woman had ever won a seat in the United States Senate in her own right. You know, and I say that because there had been a few had served, usually because their husbands had passed away and they'd been appointed. I mean, to be blunt, I mean that was like yeah. that was your path to the U.S. Senate. Imagine if that uh, was like your your husband died and you're like, oh, I got this Senate seat. Right. I mean, I can't imagine. Actually, it's yeah. it's really wild. Um, and does happen, you know, that, that happens. But no, Democratic women had won in her own right. And there had been a couple Republican, uh, really great Republican women, by the way, who had won. Uh, so they were watching Harriet Woods and the race was getting really close and Harriet was running out of money. And so she came to Washington, D.C., uh, looking for, as the story goes, $50,000 for a week of television in Missouri, uh, which I laugh now because that would get you like a day in St. Louis today. Um, but she went to the party structure and they they said no because they didn't believe a woman could win. And they went to sort of the other entities at the time, which is mostly labor, if you think about where democratic funding, particularly in the 80s, came from. And though they often say, you know, the response was women can't win, there are many who said women shouldn't be running. And they let her run out of money, and she lost that race by less than two percentage points. 
And that fueled the frustration on top of a couple of other things that happened, including Geraldine Ferraro's appointment as uh, the vice presidential nominee in 84, but no structure around her to help her get to, to do that because, no, it had never been done. Those things led – uh, this group of women to come together and say, we need to find a funding solution. So Emily's List was really at its core a funding solution to an, at least get women to a place that they were seen as viable by the party structure. And that was how we started because we couldn't get those funds. It took us decades really to break through and now we do get uh, very generous support from Democratic donors across the country. I wanted to, to ask you, Erin, since you're dealing with uh, people that are kind of across the board and you're dealing with the very early stages of this, are there specific regions of the country that are showing a big push toward female candidates interested in running for office? Like, are you seeing like a ton of women from California? Are you seeing a ton of women from the Midwest? Where is the biggest groundswell happening? Yeah. I mean, look, it's super interesting because... You know, let me start in a place of many people don't realize that we have over 520,000 elected offices in the United States. And of those over 520,000 elected offices, over 500,000 of them are at the local level. So that leaves this sort of small slice, right, of, you know, 20,000 plus offices that represent our federal and our state-ledge type level offices and then up the ticket. And so much of the emphasis in our country, and, and for, for some really good reasons, um, is on those highest level offices. It's where the money flows. Um, it's where the kind of the, the, the media cycle lives. Um, and meanwhile, you know, we have all of these local offices in our communities where, um, where tremendous change and um, tremendous influence in our, in our local communities is happening. So for the women who are coming into She Should Run, you know, many of them thinking about this for the very first time. And, and look, I want to point out a, a kind of interesting shift that we've seen in our work. So we run a program called an Ask Woman to Run program, very simple, rooted in research that women aren't encouraged to run at the same rate. So you can come to She Should Run and tell us about great women you know that should run. It, that used to be the primary way that we found out about women that should be thinking about running for office. Now, you know, it's this 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 excellent split between still getting, you know, uh, men and, and women involved in, in telling us about great women leaders, but but really, you know, women also just raising their hand and saying, no, me, I don't, I don't need someone to encourage me. I want to do this myself. Mm-hmm. And they're from all over, you know, of this of this increase that we've seen in the last year. They, these women represent all 50 states. Um, they're, they're, they're truly spread all over the country. And most of them are looking at running at the local level. And I think what's even more encouraging than that is they're looking at running at the local level. And look, most women don't think about running for office and find themselves on the ballot immediately. I, I, I celebrate those who do. Um, it's generally a little bit of a process, like get, getting connected with your community and, and um, the opportunities. In the meantime, though, they're finding themselves on local boards and commissions. They're getting involved in taking over their local parties. And I think, you know, while that change, the result of that is not going to be clear overnight. It's something that will continue to, I think, have a positive influence on our democracy in the years to come. Right. So it's a it's a long pipeline. Totally. And, and you're kind of feeding the very beginnings of the pipeline. Crude Conversations is brought to you by Blue Bottle. Oh, Blue Bottle. Guys. The days are getting shorter. Fellas. Ain't that the truth. 
bros. The days the are getting shorter. The weather's finally cooling off. And nothing compliments a crisp autumn day like a cup of coffee. Any coffee? No. Okay. Which coffee? I'm talking about coffee that's so delicious, so flavorful, that you realize you've been drinking Subbar coffee your whole life. It's coffee so good it makes you sad, John. Blue bottle coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Please briefly describe what types of blue bottle coffee you've tried and how unbelievable it was. I had one in a cold cup. I had one in a hot cup. I had one with a breakfast sandwich. Oh, ever, si- ever since that Rebel. <laughs> Peterman catalog over there. Uh, I had the delicious New Orleans, which is the kind of the, creamy, I sugary. The New Orleans. Perfect. Ever since I had that revelation. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> How are you doing after that? I, I, it's been touch and go. Uh, you were like speaking in tongues. <laughs> he's been weird ever since. He's, yeah. been ever, he's been weird since he figured out the coffee yeah. thing. I've had plenty of coffee in my day. <laughs> John, John was planking in a mega church with like four blue bottles and we kind of <laughs> lost him for a while. Most delicious coffee I've ever had. Hurry to bluebottlecoffee.com slash convos for $10 mm. off. Your first subscription order, John, just made a gesture that said, why aren't all the codes the same? That's right. The question we'll continue to ask on your behalf. And while you're there, be sure to check out their digital holiday store because Blue Bottle Coffee makes a great gift. BlueBottleCoffee.com slash convos. That's BlueBottleCoffee.com slash convos. Save big money on protecting your garden. Now at Menards. Messina's Animal Stopper is a liquid repellent that prevents pesky animals from damaging your garden. Available in a convenient, ready-to-use bottle. It lasts for up to 30 days, regardless of weather and watering. Save big money on Messina's Animal Stopper at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals happening now. One of the things that I noticed after Election Day last year, where my feelings were quite opposite, and a lot of our listeners' feelings are also probably opposite, was I remember there was a, it was a late-night monologue. I think it was Seth Meyers, and he said something like, we didn't see the first female president elected last night, but she might be watching right now. Aaron, how does it make you feel to know that you might have already had contact with the future first female president of the United States? Yeah, look, look that's that's what keeps us going every day. And I think, you know, I think it's important to talk about the stories of the women who lost, too, because there is something happening that, look, you know, historically, when women run races and lose at a at a higher rate than men, they, they sort of step out, right? They shrink, shrink away um, for a whole host of reasons, take it much more personally than men do. But, you know, I keep going to the personal story. So so one, you know, there's there's a woman who ran for state senate in in New Jersey and her name's Christine Chen and and Christine was not successful, but she unlike many of the candidates that we 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 we've followed in the past, you know, the election day came and went and the next day she was back up um, put out a kind of a public announcement to her supporters and friends saying, you know, look, this is just the beginning. Um, we weren't successful. She actually did a, a nice, uh, I feel like, civic duty of reminding folks that, you know, n- upwards of 95 percent of incumbents are reelected and she was a challenger and and she feels even more <laughs> committed now to making a difference in her community and for her state and for her country. And so I think I think that there's just something really powerful that's happening right now in, in women feeling 
connected, not feeling like they need to be part of a group. And you don't need the group. You can you can kind of come together with who's there for you. It doesn't mean that you, you shouldn't tap into the, the support structures that are out there. But I'm just very optimistic about what is to come. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a lot of reasons that – well, a lot of reasons that anybody wouldn't run for office is because they're afraid of the unknown. Stephanie – do you think, and this is this is maybe a wild theory, and you can tell me I sound like an idiot, feel free. But one of the things that I've thought about a lot in the last few years is that, you know, social media, the internet has exposed or required a lot of younger women, women maybe under 40, to encounter on a daily basis a barrage of, of hate and abuse and, you know, people coming at them with opinions about them that are totally unsolicited and unhelpful. There's a part of me that thinks that, Having to deal with kind of Internet garbage every day has sort of inadvertently toughened up an entire generation of women and eliminated some of the fear of what running for office might expose somebody to. Do you think that that is possible, that women are sort of not afraid anymore because they know what it feels like to have people be angry at them and they just don't care? That is an interesting uh, theory, one I haven't had exact thoughts about, but you could be right. Uh, you know, part of what we do at our trainings, and we do sort of short tra- one day trainings all over the country. I think we've had. I mean, the numbers go up every week. I can barely keep track, but we've had over twenty uh, already this year. In in those rooms, a lot of the conversation is how to weather the negative advertising that comes out at you. And I think you might be you might be onto something. I'm not going to call you crazy. I think you've got a really good point there. You know, I mean, even if you did call me crazy, uh, I would not. I'm not I've been subjected crazy. to so much hate like on the that. internet that I, I don't like even it. care because it is hard, right? It is. You know, you, we know that. You know, when you run for office, you're going to toughen up. You're going to your skin's going to get thick. That's just the way it is. If it doesn't, you're going to have a hard time uh, because just that's the way it is. Not everybody's going to agree with you. You know, par, you know, long for a long time. You know, we talked about how important – we're going to go back in the way back machine again. I uh, sound like a history teacher today. But That's how important Title IX has been to teach mm-hmm. women competition and being part of teams. And you think about – I mean, there's, right now in elected office across this country, there are really two generations of women. There's the women who came up without being able to compete in sports and those who had the opportunity. Uh, and I hear it from a lot of candidates how important that experience was uh, to be on a team in high school or junior high. It doesn't even matter what age, just even, even once. And going through the loss, as Aaron was just saying, you know, Emily's list is always like, hey, a loss is just a step in the process, sister. Like, you got to just get through it. It's okay. You know, we, we have lots and lots of candidates who who have lost their first or second time and, and won or won and then lost. And won, and that's okay. It's just a part of the process. But getting used to that feeling, which is hard because it's upsetting, toughens you up. You're right about the social media part. Folks are really getting, you know, beaten up uh, more than unfortunately. I, I sort of like feel feel bad for the girls and boys right now who have to grow up with with this kind of situation through social media. On the other hand, you're right. Maybe they're coming out 
uh, tougher than we were without it. Um, yeah. And that could be very interesting moving forward. You know, so often we're saying it's like, don't read the comments section. We tell candidates all the time, <laughs> don't, just don't. And particularly yeah. don't let your girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, wife, husband, or don't your let mom. really let no family member read the comment section. Do not let your mom read the comments. Do not, I've seen so do many, I've, I've seen so many screenshots from other women that I know that are just the writing online that have shown, shown me their moms getting in fights with commenters on their articles. <laughs> Just strangers, which is pretty funny. Go moms. Yes. Um, Aaron, what are your thoughts on the toughening up of, of candidates? Yeah, look, I think it's real. We, we uh, She Should Run did some interesting research a few years back looking at the sexism that women face on the campaign trail and in, if it has a, a negative effect in the minds of voters as as they're thinking about these candidates, and we found, not surprisingly, that you know voters are processing this; they're seeing it happen. Um, it is it is hurting women in their likability on the campaign trail when you know sexist remarks are made. But the good news out of the research, um, and really essential piece of it, was that. You know, we found that there was there's a, a tremendous importance in women calling these things out, mm-hmm. um, and that uh, even beyond that, that um, that third party validators matter. So influencers in your life who can stand up for you matter just as much. And so, you know, there was a real power in that. I think that translates to you know both. I think women are tough. Are you know realizing the the need for the toughness and stepping right into it. But also, they're realizing now the power that they're not alone and that somebody else can and will hopefully have their back. Like, we all serve that role. So, you know, as we're, we're watching somebody just get ridiculous things thrown their way, that we, we play a part in that mm-hmm. if we're just watching it happen as opposed to stepping out. That doesn't mean get lost in the comments section. That's not my advice. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, to, to rise above that and go to the, you know, the real influencers who are saying these things um, and, and make a point of calling it out, it matters. Mm-hmm. And it, it's an important role we all play. Yeah, I think it's interesting that, you know, while social media has enabled any old idiot to tell you that you, you're fat and should die, it, it has also enabled people who want to support you to stand up. And, you know, if you want to support somebody, even if they're a stranger, if you see something bad happening to them, you can always stand up and, you know, be a good person, which is which is nice. The barrier to entry for being a good person is has been lowered. Stephanie, I wanted to ask you a, a sort of quick question, but I'm really interested in the sort of profile of a person that runs for office. I'm interested in what is the youngest candidate that Emily's List had supported this cycle, and what's the oldest? And did those two uh, women have a lot in common, and and what are their stories? Oh boy, that's a that is a good question. I will say, we definitely have had some young, like early twenties. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if we have an 18 year old yet this cycle. But I'm looking for. So we if can do it. She might there, be listening. Come, come on, 18 year old. I'll take it. <laughs> uh, which would be great. But a lot of young young women are stepping up, are running for the local. In Emily's list, we've we've tripled the size of our state and local team this year, as a result of of the growth and expansion and doing more work uh, in getting women in these city council races and. Uh, local county races. First off, they're great pipelines for us for all the other offices. Um, so it's really important. But I would say to everybody, you know, do, 
you know, have have we endorsed, you know, women, you know, baby boomers and older? Absolutely. I mean, we proudly endorse Dianne Feinstein for her reelection. She's probably uh, at the top edge of our of our service. And, and I think this is important because as much as we need to support the young women coming up and we do, and I'm so proud of every one of them who are willing to put their name on the ballot, we also need to back up the brave women who have been fighting for us and breaking down these doors and really helping the next generations of women come up. Uh, and those are the Diane Feinsteins uh, who had to, my gosh, broke down door after door after door. If she had been born in a later generation, I'm not so sure she wouldn't have been the first woman president. She was just born too early in this country, and we weren't ready for that. I think it's important uh, to back them up. Uh, but if we're going to get to what uh, she should run uh, once, and I want to get there, we need all women no matter the age, the background, the profession, the race, the geography, all women to seriously think about running for office at some point in their life. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to make a career out of it. You can, and I love that, and you know, do that too. But you can serve in so many ways. Uh, and and we really need all of the women uh, to think, all of us, all of us, you know, including me. I've never run myself. I ran for student. I did run for student council president, though, in high school a couple of <laughs> times and lost, which was a little painful. But then I ran, okay. for, student body I ran for student body president one. I pulled it off. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't run for office since. But I think it is for all of us to really, really think about that no matter the age or background, because we need those experiences. What we are missing now are most of those experiences at the table. If there are, if we're 80 percent men in Congress, there's a lot of different women's voices missing. And we've got to change that. And that's the same at the legislatures and, and city councils and county commissions. And you just keep going down the, down the ballot. It's so, so important. Okay. One last question. I'm going to have both of you answer quickly. But first, I'm going to go to Aaron with this. On a scale of one to matriarchy, uh, what is ahead for female political candidates? Uh, is this a tide that can be stopped or have women finally risen up to end the bullshit once and for all? Oh, I, I think uh, that we have definitely risen up. <laughs> this is just the beginning. You can see that this is an indicator of what's to come very clearly. And we won't. We can't stop until, you know, women are 51 percent of the population. We should be 51 percent of elected officials. And that's all women, you know, from all backgrounds mm -hmm. stepping up. And I think that uh, we are moving in that direction. We are not going backwards. We are full force. All right. Great. Stephanie, same question. Well, I think we got to make up for lost time. So let's go towards matriarchy. As well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I get this question like, so what is enough? And I'm like, yes, 51. We are 51 percent of the population. We should be 51 percent of every governing body. Uh, however, we could make up time for the last 200 plus years where we weren't at those tables. We just need, you know, the important part with all, all joking aside, the important part is that there are great women leaders in this country. They may not know it yet, but they are out there. And we have to provide all of the opportunity we can 
to encourage, promote, and lift up those women because they will change the direction of our country. And for all of us who aren't running, and I challenge anybody who's listening to this, go out. If you're not willing to run yet, yet, I, I don't say never to me because I won't accept that. But if you're not willing to run <laughs> here, here <yeah>. I've <laughs> met Stephanie right? in real life, and I <laughs> dread her ever asking me to run for anything because I won't be able to say no I to just her. So need anyway, a go not on. now if you really can't run yet. But for all of us, go out and find a woman who is running for office in your local community and help her. Volunteer fundraise, stuff envelopes. Yes, they still stuff envelopes. I know it's crazy. It does happen. Like go out there, door knock, get involved. That is going to make a huge, huge difference because women, it's not just going to be the women candidates that are going to lead us out of this. It is going to be the women voters who are going to determine the direction of this country. And the only way we do that is if every one of us takes on the responsibility of engaging politically with the women in our communities. And that's on all of us. Well, that is a really hopeful note to end on. Ladies, thank you so much for being here today. Erin Liz Cutraro, the founder and CEO of She Should Run. You can check it out at sheshouldrun.org. And Stephanie Shriok, the president of Emily's List, emilyslist.org. Thank you so much for being here. And I look forward to the matriarchy. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. If you liked what you heard today, please rate us in the iTunes store. If you have ideas or suggestions for a topic you'd like to hear covered, please let us know on the Crooked Media Facebook page. And next week on Crooked Conversations, Brian Boitler, editor-in-chief of Crooked.com, talks to Donald Verrilli, the former Solicitor General of the United States. You know, I think we're about to sail into some really turbulent waters here with respect to the rule of law and what it means to us and our ability to preserve it. I think that in the near term, the next year or so, that's principally not going to be a struggle in the courts. It may make its way to the courts, but I think it's principally going to be a struggle around the way executive power is exercised. Thanks for listening. <laughs>